0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. Uh, this week, we have on our panel, Lee
1: Whalen. Hi, everybody. I'm Lee Whalen. I run the, uh, the greatest DevOps as a service company nobody's ever heard of, Fuzzy Logic. We keep your app running on Black Friday.
0: Nice. <laughs> uh,
2: Scott Nixon. Hey, this is Scott Nixon uh, from Cloud Mechanics, also a DevOps shop. Uh, that's all I got on that.
0: Nice. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV. Um, I, I play a DevOps guy. I'm the CEO of devchat.tv. So I do all the jobs you don't have people for and that's one of them. So that I, I, I am the DevOps guy here. Uh, we also have a special guest this week and that's Usher uh, from Blameless. Usher, do you want to introduce yourself? Let people know who you are,
3: why you're famous? Uh, famous. Uh, hi everyone. My name is Usher Risky. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders here at a company called Blameless. Um, where our goal, our vision is to help companies move fast without breaking. Um, and why am I famous? Well, there was the bunch of albums that I released in the last uh, couple of decades. <laughs>
1: my moves, um,
3: all that other stuff. I um, love the way you just totally owned that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I wish I had that level of fame, but uh, I, I would say if there was anything that I was... Uh, infamous for, it would be, um, they might internal networks for a lot of the uh, bad, bad, very nasty outages and kind of dealing with those. So,
0: yeah, um, when, when I talked to the folks at Blameless, uh, we had a long conversation about what uh, reliability meant, and then we talked a whole bunch about uh, what do you do when crap goes wrong, right? Because things are just going to slide off the shelf or... Um, you know, go down in a, a flaming pile of of something, and it sounded like a lot of what what blameless does and a lot of what you folks talk about a lot is just when that happens, does everybody know what to do? Do we know who the stakeholders are? Do we know where we 're going with this? How do we make sure that we 're handling it properly, and how do we make sure it doesn 't happen again and i 'm just like i 'm like, yeah, everybody needs a little of that so How do you folks approach this? How how do you look at this problem of um, making things reliable, and then when it's unreliable, making sure that it becomes more reliable?
3: Yeah, great. This is um, this. I guess this is where we go into therapy here a little bit. So I'll start. I'll I'll back up and I'll I'll share a few anecdotes. Um,
0: I'm I'm going to lean my chair back. Um, I'll tell I'll tell you about my mother and
3: (laughs) go ahead. I'll I'll slip my mother into one of these for sure. Uh, So, you know, we, uh, I I worked at two very successful cloud companies and uh, both had very different cultures. And um, at the end of the day, I mean, we can talk, we can talk all day about like how you got to set up your systems and your processes and internal tools you got to have around, uh, reducing mttr and like all these different types of metrics but um i like to take the. i'm not the familiar with that term what is mttr mttr stands for mean time to recovery how long does it take you to recover from the act the actual incident that you are it's a very common metric that gets used in today's day and age um my point that i was trying to make is that you got to start with the culture first right so in these two companies were very different cultures you have this culture of Psychological safety and then psychological unsafety. So think about when you're in an incident or something bad happens, like you're already coming, there's this negative energy that's there. Um, And it just becomes so easy for human emotions to derail and start pointing fingers and self-protective behavior and hiding data and evidence and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, what, what I like to talk about or like to encourage people is to really, really question at the highest level within your team or your company or whatever thing is like, do I have psychological safety? Am I giving people within my company the ability to make mistakes? Is this incident okay? And the answer should always be yes, every incident is okay. It's because it's an opportunity for us to learn. And it starts there and then it goes into, okay, now that we have this culture, we, under, like, we have this blameless culture is one word for it, but we have this culture where we allow people to make mistakes and it's okay to have these incidents. Um, you know, as a human being, as a as a as a as an individual, it's okay for me to be involved in something that's so high stress. How do we actually recover from this as quickly as possible? Do we have the right tools in place? Do we have the right people and the right run books and all of these other things in place? And that's kind of where, you know, you have systems or companies like PagerDuty that really help with, you know, helping you notify and getting notified and escalated to as quickly as possible. Okay. Now that the escalation has happened, what is it that we're actually looking at? And you know, what do we need to talk to? I need to let the the executive team know. I need to let my customers know. All of that kind of starts to fall into place. And um, you know, we've had decades of experience and learnings from other industries like you know, uh, fire services and uh, emergency response. It's emergency responders, responders in healthcare that we can actually learn from and apply. So that was kind of my long way of coming and saying like, yes, you should have tools and process in place, but the first thing you really got to focus on is, I got to create an environment of safety where people really can focus on the problem and help resolve that problem. And one thing that I'd say about what we do at Blameless is, you know, we're shifting the blame from individuals into a system. Like that's the best thing that you can have is like, hey, it's always the system's fault. It's not anybody, any individual team's fault. So you can think of us as the system where all the, we're just here to absorb all the money.
1: Excellent, that is, that is some, something that uh, I have seen in the, in the very highest performing uh, SRE organizations is you, know, you, you don't wanna slap the hand of the, the person that, that's running the, you know, the system um, because then they're incentivized to, to not give you the full story. But if you, you know, as you said, if you create a culture of, of safety, and, you know, and you shift the blame from the individual to the system, you, you get a much more honest and, and clear picture of what went wrong. And that enables uh, leadership, whether it's you know, the line manager or even the, the individual engineer, all the way on up to, to the C-levels. Um, that gives them the tools they need to, to fix the system, which is really what we're trying to do. Um, yeah, there's the, the old anecdote of uh you know the the junior engineer presses the the big red button and it causes a uh, you know a 2 million dollar loss and the, the the line manager's like oh we should fire the junior engineer and uh and the c-level you know the the wise in c-level comes down and says why would we do that we just spent 2 million dollars training him <laughs> <laughs> I, unfortunately- yeah, my
0: question is is who put the big red button there,
1: exactly. there you go. that's exactly the
3: question to ask
0: the The other question I have is: Is what if it really is somebody's fault?
2: Well, but you know, the whole thing is we're hopefully making changes at at small enough levels that it's manageable, and you know that you can roll that thing that those kinds of things back, and you know you're supposed to, you know, build the systems in such a way that there's lots of things that are helping um, prevent those things as much as possible.
0: Right. That's the reliability part. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess. I guess the question I have is. I've seen companies that try to do this, but there's one person that's responsible for like 75% of the issues. They're just not paying attention. They're being a little bit a bit reckless. You know, you can boil most of the problems down to this one person being around. So do you continue blameless or do you get rid of them?
1: It's that's I, I think and, and Usher, please, you're you're the expert in this field. Feel free to um to to chime in, but I I think that's rarer than people would, would into it basically. Yeah, it's right. But uh, it does I, happen. I, I think, of course it does. But I, I don't think anybody goes into a job saying, hmm, how much chaos can I create? You know, aside from things like industrial espionage, which does happen. Mm-hmm. But you know, if I'd say that if there is a, you know, a consistent pattern of, you know, this one person keeps elbowing the big red button, even after we've raised it above head height, Uh, that might be time for, uh, you know, a personal improvement plan or, or other disciplinary actions, but for, for the occasional, um, you know, just chaos and running the machine, you know, I think it's safe to assume good intent.
3: I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, it's very rare. I mean, what, what I tell people is that assume, like you said, assume good intent, um, when someone is being malicious, you will know. And that's, that's a good situation to have in the sense that it's very clear. You're like, okay, we got to get rid of this person. But in nine out of ten cases, in almost all cases, it's very rare that there's one individual that is out to get, you know, like creating this chaos intentionally. Or, um, and, you know, if that's happening, you're actually going to see leading indicators in other parts of how they're interacting with team. You're going to have folks that are going to be left and right come in and be like, Hey, it's really hard to work with this, with this person. You got to do something about it. It's going to end up leading to this performance plan for this person likely to be phased out of that particular team.
0: Yeah, I agree. I just know that somebody has it going through their head. Yeah. But what if it's, you know, what if it's somebody's fault? And I, I agree with your assessments here. It is pretty rare. The other thing is, is that, um, to what Usher said, Um, most of the time when there is one problem person, I mean, they could be the most talented person on your team, but if they're a real problem, um, then yeah, you'll, you'll get it from the rest of your team. And even if you don't, um, when they take that person aside, you're not violating this, uh, system of trust that we're talking about here, where, you know, people are trying to hide stuff because they know that that person should be gone, right? They're, they're actually sitting there going, why didn't you get rid of them sooner? Um, but, but yeah, for most of the rest of folks, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt, uh, train them, do, you know, do, do, do your part to make sure that at the end of the day, they're willing to collaborate on the solution as opposed to try and cover the rear end.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, that was a great podcast, everybody. See you next time. <laughs> yeah. We're all in agreement. No, <laughs> we're all in <laughs>
0: Right. So, so the thing that I get to with a lot of this though, is, and this is something that I've been working on in my own company, even outside of DevOps is stuff is going to go wrong. So what do you do when it goes wrong? You have every, nobody's covering up anymore. Now what?
3: Step number one, um, stay calm. Um, don't panic things as, as human beings. Here's, here's kind of what I've seen or, and what I've actually personally experienced is like. Especially for folks that really genuinely care. Like if you really care, um, you know, about what you do, about the company that you're in, about what you're building, you are going to take stuff upon yourself, right? So it's really important to see that pattern, know that you're kind of going into that mindset and then stop yourself and say, okay, it's, stay calm. It's fine. We're going to, you know, everything's going to be all right, right? Am I, do I have the right team around me to help? support me and help me get back to things being normal? Do I have the right, um, you know, organizational support? Do I have the right um, executive level support? A lot of those things, you know, it's always important to kind of remind yourself that you are in a protected environment. You are surrounded by folks that care equally as much as you do. Um, And then once you're sort of in that mindset, you have that clarity, it's all about, okay, like how do we get back to a good, what is the known good state, the last known good state? And how do we get to that good state as quickly as possible that is the only singular focus when things do go wrong in that initial part Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about okay how do you prevent this from happening again but the initial focus is get back to a good state as quickly as possible stabilize the situation assess the situation stabilize the situation um, and then go on from there right Um, and that requires having some pieces in place individuals in place having a commander who's responsible for sort of orchestrating everything together having someone who's responsible for um, the actual subject matter expert that's going to go has enough knowledge and expertise to go and understand and resolve the issue having access to tools where you can actually pull additional support in from people internally externally um, and keeping everybody informed around this whole process right so
0: yeah I have an analogy to that uh, so this guy I know um, he was up on his father-in-law's roof um, working on the roof, and he got on the ladder, and the ladder wasn't well anchored, and it slid out from under him, and he broke his arm. And uh, you know, so the first thing is, is you know, uh, he's not going to go back up on the roof and start roofing again. He's going to get his arm better first. That's the main focus. And then next time he gets on the roof, he's going to make sure that the ladder's well anchored. Right. Right. Exactly. Re- it really hurts to fall off the roof. It, it hurts. hurts.
2: Yep. I think we lost our thread there.
3: <laughs> oh, I, I was gonna. I, was, I think somebody else was talking. Yeah, um, go for it. Go for uh, it. What I was gonna say is that, um, yeah, imagine falling from that roof the second time, and then the third time, and the fourth time. Right. Right. There's not only your body that's being damaged, but you've got your ego, hopefully, that's also being damaged. But then the medical bills that are piling up. Right. All of that is very much applicable in sort of any scenario in any company in any sort of environment where you're you just you're not necessarily if you don't have that culture of blamelessness and being able to learn from that issue and preventing it from happening again well it's going to happen again it's going to hurt as much if not more and it's going to cost you so much more right yeah so absolutely
0: well the other thing is is when i fell off that or when my friend fell off that roof um, the other thing was, was nobody was asking who put the ladder up, right? So it wasn't, we weren't trying to cast blame. It was, hey, let's get to a doctor, right? And so it's the same approach there too. Yep,
1: yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's, somewhat, it's almost like there's multiple distinct phases when you're dealing with an incident. You know, you, you want to triage the incident, mm-hmm. uh, but you want to mitigate the incident, you know, resolve it and then have an official uh, close or, or retrospective. Um, where things like your your process uh, process improvement documentation are you know modified as needed.
0: Yeah, I like that. Uh, and the thing is, is when you're talking about the process, um, it's not just the process of how do we develop the software, how do we deploy the software, how do we, you know, how do we make sure that our backups are running or whatever redundancies we're talking about here with reliability, right? It's also the process of what happens when something goes bad in the future so we call these people we pull in these people we you know we communicate in these ways we go check on these particular things you know go look in the logs and that way we're we're already moving forward because everybody knows what their part is in the procedure when things go sour
2: speaking of things going sour one of the things i got into a conversation with a group of folks at DevOps Boise, um, oh, DevOps days, Boise, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, one of the people asked the question, like, how do you define, how do you come up with like an error budget? And i uh, I was wondering if you had some suggestions on how you've come up with error budgets for teams.
3: Interesting. Um, this is a really exciting concept. Um, for folks that don't know, does everyone know what an error budget is or, um, I think you should just explain it. I'll I'll explain explain what an error budget is. So um, I'll start with a sort of technical explanation, but then I I think the error budget concept is so intriguing because it applies not just to software, but it applies to your culture. So what I was reacting to in that question was like team error budget Now, you didn't say, budget for my product for myself, which I think is fascinating and I, and I love hearing that. But <clears throat> I'll start with the technical explanation is that historically, you know, I'm sure everybody here has heard of the term SLA, service level agreement, right? And I have, a, I have a very strong aversion to the word, the term SLA, and the reason why is because the, the, the person who has to shovel all the crap because of this arbitrary number that's been set by a sales guy and a lawyer in a room locked up somewhere, um, that's that's extremely painful, right? And it's one number, ninety nine point nine percent, ninety nine point nine nine. That's supposed to represent all your systems coming together to represent reliability, right? And it's just not going to happen. It's not something. It's been around for decades. It just does not work, and it's just been a source of a lot of issues. So, um, you know, Google came up with this concept of an SLO, service level objective. And they, they took it one step further and said, look, an SLA is an agreement that you put in a document somewhere that you're promising to your customers. But how do you actually keep those promises? And they started with this concept of an SLO. And the SLO has a few principles behind it. So principle number one is that there is never 100% of anything in this world, right? So why do we expect our systems to operate at this 100% level? There's no natural, or natural system that has 100% availability level. Well, let's establish that fact. That's great. The other principle is that that number should be representative of a pain point, right? So in the technical world, we say CPU utilization is really high. Well, does that mean that my checkouts are not happening or my users are happy? I don't really know, right? But if I see a drop in login requests, well, that's representative of my user, what my user is experience. So let's just focus on that. Forget about all the other stuff. And then the final principle here within this error budget, this concept of error budget comes from the fact that you don't have 100% of this thing, which means you have some, some, some level, some budget available to you that you can use to your pleasure. You can do whatever you want with that budget. What that means in today's DevOps world is that you say, okay, we have 40 minutes of downtime that we can tolerate, that's our error budget. And um, that means that I can continue to ship as fast as possible as long as I stay within that 40 minutes of error budget. And that error budget, the assumption there is that is completely related to your user's happiness. So that's really where the concept of error budget comes from. Now, that concept again applies to the team, like how many errors can I collectively as a team you know, have, or how much error budget does my product have? Um, At our company internally, as a culture, we actually use that vernacular to talk to each other about trust, like, hey, I I trust you a lot. You know, and I'm going to give you a very large error budget uh, to make mistakes as a new employee that's coming in. You have three months to onboard in that three months. I'm going to actually give you a very large error budget to experiment and make mistakes. But after that, the air budget's gonna go down because we're tuning in running time. So, um, you know, I was kind of rambling about the air budget, wanted to give some explanation there, but uh, the air budget concept is very much like a financial budget that you can use to, in your personal relationships, in your professional relationships, but more importantly, in establishing an objective way in which teams can say, okay, we're gonna slow down because we've consumed all our air budget, and we're gonna focus on reliability work, or we're going to speed up and innovate more and try and experiment with new things. Um,
2: so, yeah, thank you. That was great. The um, a lot of what I think about around like the service level objectives oftentimes is, you know, something like an e-commerce website. You want you want very very little downtime with something like that but if it's like a project management application, you know, maybe you have a little more, maybe you have those 40 minutes. And obviously you want to define those 40 minutes over what a month, a quarter something like that. Um, and you know, I know in I, Google in their book, uh, the SRE book that they wrote, one of the things they talked about was they would actually stop, um, Allow it, you could, you could have the, the policy that you just stop shipping new features. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you it exceeded your budget for that time period. And so then for the rest of that quarter, no new features. So I thought that was really yeah. Interesting take.
3: Yeah, that's a really interesting concept. And we're, we're, what we're seeing is in the market is this rapid adoption of this concept, because a lot of folks feel the pain of not having an error budget. Um, and so we're seeing this rapid adoption, and you're right. Like we're seeing some really advanced practices come up around error budgets. Like, not only do I want to, as a as part of my error budget policy, I may actually decide to automatically block deployments from going out, right? Uh, and that team is no longer allowed to push any new features until they actually get their error budget back, which can take a day, two days, three days, four days, however long, right? Um, so it's a really, really cool really advanced concept that's changing the way that I think teams are collaborating with each other and more importantly, how teams are shipping software.
2: And having that error budget attached to the several level objectives, you know, you get C-level, you know, director level sign off on these things. So it's very clear whenever, Oh, the site's down, but, and then the, they are able to see whenever they look at their reports on their weekly or monthly basis. Hey, well, it was down, but, you know, hey, we still were within our budget. We've all agreed this is acceptable for our business. So.
0: Right. Yeah. And the other thing is is it it really does give people a chance to okay. So next time I change the indexes on the database, I'm going to test it on my machine first. Or, you know, and so you are giving people that room to move. Cuz cuz those innovations are critical sometimes to the life of the business going forward.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is, it's not so much that you can't continue to develop, you know, those new features, right. It's just, maybe you're not shipping them. Um, and then that maybe gives your team a little more time to make sure that they're like re- reviewing and writing plenty of tests so that this stuff, whenever it goes yeah. live, doesn't fall apart.
1: Usher, yeah, When you're, um, when, when you bringing this, uh, or, or the, these new methodologies to, to companies. I mean, myself, Scott, Chuck, and I we're we're all experienced. We've, we've got full buy-in to, to this sort of thing. We, we've seen the kind of good they bring. When you bring this to a, um, a new organization, um, when, when you get pushback, how do you, like, what, what would you say some of your, your common, um common objections are to just saying, you know, no, we're not going to immediately do this right now. And then how would you move, uh, how do you move past them? It's a great question. We, we actually get this a lot.
3: Um, and, you know, not everybody has read the Google SRE book uh, that, that encapsulates a lot of these concepts quite nicely. Um, majority of the world, especially larger companies that operate in this old world, um, actually are the ones that have a lot of challenge. It's because they haven't, um, they're so... so Their old practices, the legacy way of doing things is so ingrained um, that it's really hard to break away from that. I'll give you an example, right? So, um, you know, in a lot of large companies, we have a dedicated function around, like there's five to 10 people that, and all their day job is to manage incidents and nothing else. And then you have teams that are, all their job is to corral people and do postmortems with them. And that's like their nine to five day job and they do nothing else, right? So they're not even aware that there's this possibility that, you know, the developers should be the ones that should be managing their own incidents and should be doing their own postmortems and should be the ones in charge of their services and products running in production. And um, so we spend a lot of time sort of at least showing them, you know, how free, like, through automation, through platforms, through like a lot of these tools like Terraform and you know, CI CD platforms and you know, platforms like Blameless, um, it frees up their time so that they can go and focus on higher value. A lot of SRE teams, for example, they just have the title SRE, but what they're doing is they're still doing the same button pushing and lever crunching and all that kind of stuff. When we sit, show them how their time, like we've just freed up 70% of their time because their toil inside their work has gone away. Well, you can now use 70%, that 70% of your time on doing much higher value work, maybe joining a product team and learning how to develop software. Um, so the first thing is to kind of show them where they are, and I, and I really hate using this word, and I apologize for using it, but in this maturity matrix or maturity model, maturity curve, whatever you want to call it, where do they stand? What are they losing out on? What are they missing out on? And this is what kind of the end state looks like. And how do you actually get to that end state? So kind of giving them that visibility. And more importantly, this is one other practice, like what I've experienced with, for example, DevOps is, just don't call it DevOps. Don't talk about DevOps. Do it first. Build, make it a habit. Build these habits in. And eventually you realize that you're doing these practices. And that's something that I highly encourage people is like, Start with one SLO, you don't even have to call it an SLO, call it something else. We have companies that are so averse to the term SLA, SLO, that they'll just call it something else. a Critical service availability metric or whatever.
1: But KPI. Yeah, or
3: KPI, exactly right. Just call it that. The activity, the work that's going to go to define that is exactly the same. But now you're standardizing on it, and then later on we'll come back and say, "Oh, by the way, what you just established is an SLO," and they, they kind of have this system in pro they've made it their own. Number one, and they're running with it, and they're starting to see that benefit themselves. So we spend a lot of time educating folks, showing them like kind of where they stand. But we're very uh, we're very mindful, we're very careful as to not shove these concepts and ideas down people's throats. Like. The best way to, to get them to buy is actually show them and have them experience that themselves, and that takes time
2: so yeah. one of the things I, I often think about in kind of this realm of kind of trying to bring practices and organizations is so um, warren buffett 's business partner, Charlie Munger, often talks about how powerful incentives are, and that 's like always been a cornerstone of their the way they 've run their business and If you look at a lot of these things where you know, if you have somebody else like cleaning up your mess, like you should fix your own bugs realistically. But if you have a team that's fixing bugs or writing postmortems, like they feel all the pain and, and you don't feel any of the pain from your own mistakes. And so you're just more likely because you're not incentivized to make sure that your stuff isn't going to cause problems. And, um, you know, and I think it's, I think it's a really, really powerful thing. And especially, you know, it's, re- I think, it, cause you can, you know, management is used to, you know, looking at salespeople and making sure that they're uh, aligning those incentives correctly. And so this is just, it's being able to do very similar things in a technology place where it's, you know, you're making sure the incentives align with the people that are potentially in the place to bring systems down or also learn from their mistakes i mean i think that's one of the most powerful aspects of the postmortem is that you sit down and you learn why what went wrong and maybe then you somebody else can come in and be like hey if you had done this this would have worked better and, then, and it could be just like a huge light bulb moment for that person because now they see this completely different way they could approach maybe the same problem so that's just some thoughts
0: i think it's interesting you bring that up uh, the way you did scott one thing that I run into, though, is that a lot of people don't really know where the problems are that they have. And so, you know, you, you talk about these solutions or, you, you know, Usher's talking about saving people 70% of their time. They don't realize they have that problem until you solve it for them. And so I'm, I'm wondering how you educate people that way and say, you know, you're, you're spending a ton of time here that you don't need to and do it in such a way to where they actually do buy in. Because at the end, yeah, it's, it's, oh, yeah, that saved us a bunch of time and we're getting all this other stuff done. But beforehand... Like- I think
2: one, the, one of the things that makes me think of is, is like, is the organization measuring the developer's productivity? Like, like we've got five yeah. developers, are we actually getting, you know, three or four or five developers worth of work? Or are we getting like one developer worth of work because we're doing all this other stuff? Like, I mean, I know that's a big problem whenever organizations involve engineers and in hiring processes, is it totally depletes their ability to do work because they're spending four and 10 and 20 hours a week doing interviews. So.
0: Yeah, I think I think that goes back to the other point that was made. I think Lee might have made that point where it was essentially, yeah, you know, if you're measuring it, you know, no matter what you call it whether it's an SLO or a KPI or something else, then yeah, then you're going to start managing to that.
1: Well, I think it's it's also important to to choose the the right thing to measure. I mean, there's uh, it's so easy to grab metrics from everything from your your base virtual machine or bare hardware to you know your your application stack at any moment that it's you it's very easy to get buried in in a flood of useless information and and then you're, you're hit with analysis paralysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's it's important to figure out okay what, what is the stuff the business actually cares about. Uh, yeah. One one thing that I, I point out frequently um, is you know why why is a company alerting on CPU usage on mm-hmm. on a random VM and mm-hmm any time during, you know, in today. Uh, I, I would say that's nine times out of 10, that's a, that's a useless metric. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's much more important to, to measure something like API response time or, you know, number, number of requests per API user, you know, per minute or per second or what have you. And, the, you know, the, the overuse of CPU time is really going to be a secondary or tertiary effect to the thing that you actually care about.
2: Yeah, it's the, I, yeah, my one sentence sentence way to to kind of talk to restate what you're saying, Lee, is um, like, what's the point of measuring having measuring any metric if it doesn't change the way you run your business? It's just a waste of time. Oh, sorry, <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's all good. But but that that's uh, I, I have two things that I I want to kind of get to, and one of them is uh, directly related to this, and that is is Lee the reason that they're um, measuring it is because all they had to do was check a box in Nagios or something. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And so, so they're, they're, they set the, the alert because it didn't cost them anything, except for the time later on, you know, when they're going and looking all, at all these metrics, all the important ones are mixed in with all the other ones. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So how do you start identifying the things that you need to be paying attention to to avoid some of these issues or outages later on? Is it a trial and error thing or are there good guidelines for
3: that? You know, um, one thing that we learned as we were working with a bunch of our, you know, a bunch of companies was that what we do, there's there's so many there's so many so there's so much data that's just hard to quantify. I'll give you an example. What's the cost of an incident? Well, if you're an e-commerce provider and the application affected is your checkout application, for example, or your payments processing application, that's pretty straightforward right, but we're not talking about a world in which we have hundreds if not thousands of applications per company and they're all kind of interdependent on each other, that's one. How do you measure the, the, the sunk cost, the, the, really the hard to measure cost, like how much time are my engineers that I'm paying gobs of money to, to develop and, and write all this code, how much time are they spending on, not doing feature development, for example, or not shipping code or not doing things that are value add to the business, for example, right? So if they're running into incidents, what is the cost of that incident from a, how much am I paying this person? How much time did they spend on that incident? Oh, and by the way, not just the incident, but everything that happens after that incident, the postmortem and all the activity around collecting the data and collaborating with everyone and putting all that together. Those are costs that are hard to measure. And what we found is that, When we were able to quantify that, that just changed the whole landscape, the whole game, because they're like, wow, this is data. These are costs that we know exist. It's like kind of, you know, black matter. We know it's there. We just can't see it, can't really provide any evidence of it. But when we get it, it's like game changing for us. And that's really speaking to the points that, uh, you know, uh, Scott and Lee were making around being able to, what, what are these KPIs that we want to bubble up um, and use that to drive some sort of behavioral change in the enterprise. And um, I think the other one that I want to make here very quickly is that that data already is living inside your company, somewhere inside your business, somewhere. It's just a matter of being able to access it and reason from it. A lot of times we recommend folks to hire you know, data engineers to come in and just try to corral that data and really try to figure out um, where, where is that cost going? Where am I, what, well, how inefficient is it in my business?
0: Yeah. And that, that speaks to the other point that I wanted to get to. I've been reading the book good to great by, uh, Jim Collins and you know, it's, it's more of a business book, but the chapter that I've been reading is the one about having the right people on the bus. And so that's the other question that I'm, I'm driving at or thinking about is, um, you know, maybe you don't have people that are problems. Maybe you, you have the right people, or maybe you need to get more of the right people involved in the process or hire the right people to, you know, to be involved in the process. So how do you, how do you go about finding those people and identifying those people that are going to come in and make things move forward in the way that you want?
2: Hmm. Yeah. So uh, one of the things it's funny that you bring up that Jim Collins book, because I, I don't remember what there's a, I don't know, it covers like maybe 16 companies or something like that, but a huge number of them have totally just like tanked and i'm i'm going to use that to make a an example of something i actually shared um uh, you know in the last 15 years 50 2% of the fortune 500 companies have disappeared from the fortune 500 and so like you know it's very clear that like that was ac- actually as of 2015 but um but that the you know that's it just shows you how like super competitive business is and how fast things change. And if you're not really staying on top of processes and, and um, constantly like really investing in systems and the way you improve on the way you execute, you know, how quickly you can just disappear.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think it is. I think it's a mix though of the process and improvement and all of those things. And you have to have people that are willing to do that. And I think that's another element I think there's, uh, there are elements of company culture and you know, how, who's in, who the leaders are, you know, there are a lot of things that go into it. And so yeah, just, you know, what, what are these aspects that are going to matter? But, but yeah, you know, yeah, I think your point is, is well made that, yeah, you know, there, there are processes and you know, that desire to do better that that go into a lot of this stuff.
3: Yeah. I, I, I wanted to quickly add to that is do better has to mean something. The business right again I mean of course in principle and practice we all agree we got to do better but it's like you gotta turn that better into something meaningful and the two axes that you know are very simple to understand is you know you've got reliability and then you've got velocity so how do we get better on, on those two axes and those two are at the very 50,000 foot level probably two of the most important things for our company to succeed so that do better has to be, you know, working towards optimizing that that uh, you know the the line across that those two axes.
2: Yeah, I love that. Love the example. Um, yeah, it's really really enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: One one question I have though is: Are there certain best practices? So when something goes down, I mean, uh, are there certain best practices that everyone should follow? Because we've kind of talked about. You know what we're measuring what we're looking at and uh you know how we move forward and doing the postmortems. but you know should there be like a central place for people to put all the information do you want to have us like one person coordinating the the look into you know what's what's broken and how do we fix it and then how do we make sure it doesn't happen again or, or am i totally off base with some of these assumptions of things that you're going to want to do
3: no i, I think um there's different, I mean, it all, it all, it all, the biggest factor in what you're talking about, uh, Chuck, here is the, the culture. Like, it has to map to how what people, people feel that they're comfortable doing internally. Are you a Spotify type culture? Are you a Netflix type culture? Are you whatever? That really factors into this. And what I mean by that is um, you may be a large company, a Fortune 500, very large company, and your culture is that of, hey, I want to be able to kind of create, and I'm not saying this is necessarily a bad thing, but silos and create like focus groups and have those focus groups solve that particular problem. So for example, I could have five people that we hire that are purely responsible for, because we care so much about postmortems, making sure that postmortems get scheduled and done on time and those action items get captured and stored in some system somewhere and this team is following up on them, or you could have a culture internally where, you know, you're, you're, you don't believe in having these kind of focused silos and you really feel strongly that the ownership and the responsibility falls on, for example, the developer and they're responsible for doing that, but you got to have that, you got to be tuned into what that culture is and whatever process you're designing, whatever thing it needs to kind of tune into that. Right. And I think, there's no point in doing postmortems and action items. Just a lot of what we found, for example, is companies will do them to check a box, right? So they're kind of useless. You're just doing them because you're saying that, hey, we have a culture of doing this postmortems and you know we learn from that, but why are you running into those same issues again, right? Um, it is important to, to treat that as a first class citizen have buy-in from the top to say, hey, we are going to prioritize time in our sprints and how we do work, to actually address a lot of these follow-up action items, right? And quite honestly, sometimes that leads to some anti-patterns. But uh, you know, in you know, are still making forward some forward progress in that domain. Um, so tune into that culture, create you know, have some ownership around it. Whether that ownership is on an individual in, embedded in a team or a centralized team, those are perfectly fine models. Um, And then follow through that follow through that commitment from the top is extremely important uh, to make that happen.
0: Nice. Yeah, I like it. I mean, different organizations value different things. So that makes a ton of sense to me that you work off of the things that your organization values to make sure that the right things are happening. And then you're discussing the process to make it better.
1: Yes. It's it's goal setting. You know, if you, if you don't have a goal, then you can't succeed. Uh, But if you can't succeed, then it's almost a tautology that you must fail. So, Usher, is there
2: anything else that you think it would be good for us to share or know about?
3: Um, we talked about, oh, yeah. Uh, there is one thing that I've been finding particularly fascinating is this whole concept of doing better from the start. And what I mean by that is, uh, well, two things. One is where... You have more and more of your typical software development lifecycle functions that are moving to the left, right so developers are owning more of their services in production, owning more of the security posture, owning more of quality and so on and so forth that's that's pretty interesting it's a pretty interesting trend and it's happening because of open source and tooling and all that stuff um, and then the second thing that I find really interesting is how do you prevent issues or have more control over the reliability and, uh, of things going out, right? And you'll hear things like resilience engineering and chaos engineering, which I think are, are, are buzzwords at this point, and there is definitely need to some of those practices, but conceptually at a very high level, you know, what, what, how, how do you set yourself up so that you know, you're not always in this reactive mode, but you're actually much more proactive um, as your software is going out, especially in this DevOps world, to maybe not prevent issues from happening completely, but have con- more control over them so that you can um, react faster and roll things back if needed, and um, and so on. So I think that's a really fascinating and interesting sort of concept that's coming up, which is um, you know what I think people are calling resilience engineering. That's that's the other thing. And then the question I would have for folks. Is who takes responsibility for that? Who actually does? Is it the SREs? Is it the DevOps folks? And how do you structure your organization to actually start doing more of that? That's a pretty open question, uh, wild
2: west right now. So, what do you think is like? Where do you think we're headed with a lot of these SRE? You know, do you do you just see increased adoption? Do you think? Do you see big changes to the way people? you know, kind of run SRE in in organizations? I'm kind of curious.
3: Yeah, I I definitely would say that people are changing the way that they operate, right? And, um, you know, operating software is becoming increasingly more complex, but which is forcing people to change the way that they work. One anti-pattern, is that you change the title of the person, but you don't actually change their job or their job responsibilities, which is an extremely common, which is what we've seen with DevOps quite frankly, right? You had the operations folks um, that were approving tickets and pushing buttons, and then you said, oh, we're gonna be a DevOps organization, so we're gonna change your title to DevOps, and all of our problems will go away, and uh, that hasn't happened, obviously. And then it's the same thing that is is a very common trap to fall into, even with SRE, which is like, oh, we already have these folks that are doing some kind of operational work. We're going to change their title, the SRE. And suddenly we're going to become, you know, an amazing SRE organization that practices these things. And um, I want to call that anti-pattern out because it's really easy to fall into. And if you find yourself doing it, just stop right there. Um, what the pattern, the healthy pattern is where, you know, um, you have a, a healthy understanding of how much, Toil or how much effort is going into and is, is spread across your organization. How much toil is there exists on the DevOps team, or how much toil exists on this development team? And if we eliminated that toil, they get all this extra time back. Well, what are some high value things that they can actually focus on? One company that I looked at in my past history, um, we have 13 SREs, and all our job was to push buttons because we had elevated privileges in production and that's all we were good for and you know we had access to all these graphs and metrics so all we were doing all day was just pushing buttons and it's not a it's not a healthy career to be in to just be doing that and being treated that way which is like the only time folks are coming to you is like hey you have elevated permissions can you sort of do xyz thing for me and the transformational change that we made there is like how do we actually take All that toil and start to transition that to the development teams, and then that SRA team started fo- focusing on bringing in new types of technologies. Um, we brought in next generation continuous delivery platform, next generation service discovery platforms. We brought in, um, you know, we became sort of this consulting organization and more seen as more of a partner. And you know, that to me was a success story of how not only were the developers more empowered to do things and move things along because that shift left, um, you know, phenomenon was happening where these developers were more responsible, but it didn't mean that the SREs lost their jobs. It meant that they're now gonna do things that they've always wanted to do or bring in new and exciting technology that's actually helping them enable the business.
1: So that's a healthy
3: pattern. We've seen this across some other companies as well. and. That's something that I highly encourage people to really reflect on and see. Um, you know, that's the pattern that I'm kind of falling into—the anti-pattern. How do I break out of it so that I can take advantage of that? Advantage of the benefits that come from.
2: That's yeah, great, totally.
0: I don't know. I I want to change my dog's name to Renton Tin, Tin and lower the crime rate in my neighborhood by doing so. <laughs> I just I love I love that. You know, you you can change the title, but it's just yeah, you, you actually have to do the work. And, yeah. and so many times we just, we, we do the other thing and then we feel good about having done something where in reality, we're not doing anything that's going to produce results.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because like um, you run into this confusion where people will sometimes see DevOps as somebody who's, oh, well, they're managing our email server or something like that. And for me, in my mind, DevOps is all about software delivery and working with software teams. And SRE, to me, in my mind, is kind of like this evolution of from, you know, automating a lot of things, but also like massively changing, you know, the organizational structure and, you know, a lot of policies and, you know, a lot, just a lot of, a lot of other things other than technology. Yep.
0: So, Usher, one question that I have, I mean, you, you started this company, Blameless, And we haven't talked a ton about Blameless. We've talked a lot about SRE. You want to just tell us in like one or two minutes how Blameless fits into the conversation we just had?
3: Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, um, you know, Blameless, like I said, our vision here is to how do we optimize reliability and velocity, right? It's not an an either or. It's like you got to do both. As a company to survive, you got to be reliable and you gotta move fast and stay competitive, right? And this is a problem that a lot of companies don't even know that they can solve. So our platform, what we set out to do is to say, okay, how do we build a, you know, the, the team that really comes in to help solve that problem is the SRE function. And that SRE function can be called production operations. It's called, it takes out multiple different names across the industry, but really its sole focus is how do we optimize for speed and velocity? And so if you think about SRE and the different principles you've got, um, how do we resolve incidents as quickly as possible, learn from them so that they never happen again, um, set SLOs and have error budgets so that we have a reason, a way to reason reliability. Um, and how do we manage change all the way, that, that thing, 80% of all the issues are caused by change. Well, how do we manage change well so that number goes down? That's essentially what Blameless does, right? Like it's that um, end-to-end platform for reliability engineering teams, for teams that really want to uh, be able to move fast without slowing down, have control over their destiny, eliminate the toil across all those different domains and be able to resolve incidents through automation and AI as quickly as possible. Um, Make doing postmortems super easy, so there's just no excuse not to do that. Right? We really focus on automation and eliminating 90% of the toil that goes into writing a post-mortem, capturing follow-up action items, and then setting SLOs, creating air budgets, setting policies on them. We're not here to replace Datadog, New Relic, AppDynamics. You already have those systems, those metrics are there. We're, help, we're here to help you uh, filter out the signal from the noise. And then from that, how do we drive meaningful change? How do we do change management, change orchestration in this new world, so that things are not breaking as often, or that you have more control over it? Right. So it's a very high-level sort of 30,000-foot view of what we do at Blameless, and um, you know, kind of helping companies solve this important problem, this important realization that you gotta you gotta do both velocity, speed, as well as um, you know, reliability. Can't live without both of them, either one of them.
2: Yeah, yeah. Businesses needs, need the speed to really be, to stay competitive. Cause if you're not, you know, moving fast and, you know, shipping stuff, you know, you're just going to get, you're going to get lapped surpassed by somebody else. So.
0: Exactly. hundred percent. And the other thing is, and you know, Usher kind of brought this up, you need the good information and then you need a way to orchestrate it. And, and it sounds like it all kind of comes back together so that you can move in the right direction as fast as possible.
3: So. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Usher, how how would you describe an ideal customer for for your product? Um, I mean, I, it sounds like you know the the blameless product is would be a good fit for a a wide variety of companies. But I'm I'm talking about who is who is the kind of company that you know when when they sign up, uh, you know, you and your co-founder sit and say, "Ooh, these guys are going to be able to solve a ton of problems." We might even be able to get a Waller testimonial out of this. Yeah,
3: great, great question. Something that we we actually and every company goes through this. They they struggle through this as um, as they grow up. Um, for us, you know, there's a certain. It's a function of size, um, function of their their environment, their infrastructure, the tech stack that they're using, and it's a function of you know who. What does is, what is their internal culture look like? What is their internal organizational structure look like? And how important is reliability to them? So what that really maps to is like, we have a min bar which says, if you're a company that's 300 employees, that's using Slack and Datadog, and you know, is, has complex workloads, and um, you've got enough engineers on the team to where you struggle with collaborating and everybody kind of coming together, Um, that's kind of the sweet spot for us, right, where the pain is extremely apparent. And because of the complex systems, when issues happen, they're bad issues. And those issues must never happen again because they have such a deep impact to the company culture, to the company bottom line. And, um, you know, but they're not, you know, so big that um, they haven't, or so far ahead. Away from SRE, so far away from DevOps that they just don't even have the basic tooling to take advantage of any of these things, right? So I would say there's a sweet spot in there, uh, roughly. What I can tell you is, customers or companies that really want to work with us but aren't necessarily ready are, you know, much like smaller startups that are about 15, 20, 25, 30 people. Um, you know, they want to, they have this desire to do things the right way, but they don't necessarily have that complexity or that pain point is not apparent at that size um, of company. Um, in terms of industries where we've we've kind of had you know success, I would say e-commerce is one, because again, downtime equals dollars lost, uh, financial services is another one, um, cloud providers that have SLAs that they're promising to their customers, um, SaaS providers, and so on. So those are kind of, when we see them kind of fall into these buckets and we're like, oh, check, 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 check. We're like, wow, this company is really feeling this pain, and we think they can benefit from what, what we have at blameless.
1: Nice. Is is there a company size or or revenue model that um that you would say would be, you know, too big to, to address right now?
3: I would say that um, you know, companies. Very large companies, so and that have a have this culture of not built here. So they're they're averse to buying software from third parties, uh, is because they just have this culture of building stuff internally because they have very strong engineering organizations. Um, yeah. Google would be one of them. Um, not to say that they couldn't benefit from, from Blameless, but also because they're so advanced along in their maturity and process and technology that we're actually learning from them. I would say those types of companies are the ones that, um, you know, don't we, we? would actually partner with them as thought leaders. Hey, let us take your learnings and show the rest of the world. Versus, hey, here's how we can improve, or come in and, you know, you can kind of take advantage of that. So we've actually seen that across a lot, a lot of like Fortune 500 companies that are so big, they have so much money, they're just gonna, they have this culture of building it internally. So they're gonna say, hey, we're gonna go and hire a bunch of engineers and keep this knowledge in house and.
1: Uh, you know build our own
3: internal systems
1: interesting okay well Comcast probably wouldn't be the 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 greatest referral Comcast is an interesting one I think they're going
3: through a little bit of a culture shift It all again it all depends on the culture where Comcast I think is is moving more to this model of how do we these these solve problems why do we keep solving them um, over and over again Um, so I think there's a little bit of that culture shift happening where they're more amenable to talking to companies like us. Um, but let's say you've got—you know—I won't name them—but a big financial services company, um, and they just have this culture of saying, "You know what? We like this product. We like what we see. We're just going to go and build it in-house and kind of replicate that functionality."
1: Very interesting. All right.
3: Yeah. yeah for for this would be my advice to some smaller startups out there they're trying to target some of these big companies it's always uh, it's always exciting to be like oh wow there's this big logo that wants to work with us and that'll be game changing for us and nine times out of ten it is a false alarm it's a red herring like avoid at all costs when you are big enough these companies will come to you and you'll be ready to work with them but um, really I would say question what what it is and why they want to are they really ready to, to take advantage of working with a small company? Fair enough. Good Very deal. cool. All
0: right. Anything else we should jump on before we hit picks?
2: No, I don't Got. I don't have anything.
0: All right. Uh, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Uh, All right, Scott, do you want
2: to start us out? Sure. Um, All right. So this week, uh, because of kind of the nature of a lot of what we talked about, I figured a great uh, pick to go along with this is, and this is if you're like kind of newer with mental models, um, you know, Shane Paris from Farnham Street wrote a book called Great Mental Models. There's an audible version, there's a hardback, all that. Um, I think that's a great place to start if you're kind of new into mental models and you don't know um, about a lot of Things like second-order thinking, you know, probabilistic thinking; those kinds of things would be inversion is another great one. Um, that's a good place to start, and uh, you can start out just by checking out the blog as well. So that's just fs.blog for Farnham Street blog. So it's a
1: great blog.
3: I love yeah. that blog. That's all I got. Nice,
1: Lee. What are your picks? All right, my my picks this week uh, are around backup and restore. We will not go into the details, uh, but I am very grateful for uh, the RESTIC uh, open source backup app and the uh, the Backblaze uh, B2 storage model.
2: Nice.
0: Very nice. Um, I'm gonna jump in here with a few picks. So one thing that I've been playing with lately, and I think it's somewhat germane to the show, is uh, Azure Functions. So it's kind of like uh, AWS Lambdas and things like that. Um, the thing that I've been uh, building in the Azure functions, and unfortunately, the documentation really isn't great for the Azure functions, um, but I've talked to a number of people that work uh, on Azure in various ways. And so um, I figured I, I could easily get help, is more or less how I picked it. Um, but they, uh, I, I've been building something that will track uh, podcast downloads. Um, so the state of podcast statistics is uh, very sad at the moment. Um, I mean, you basically know when somebody downloads your episode generally, but that 's about it and uh, so i 'm looking at ways of making that better. but uh, for right now i 'm just trying to get better numbers because um, the company that i 've been using up to up till now uh, it 's called Blueberry. You take the ease out of blueberry, the fruit, and that 's how you spell them. Um, the issue I 've had there is that i 've had uh, basically drastic drops in the number of downloads they report, like overnight. It just drops off and I talk to them and they, they essentially say, we changed our algorithm. Well, I'm tired of dealing with a black box that penalizes me for using it. So I decided to build one of my own and I've been working on PodWrench, which is a podcasting system anyway. So um, anyway, it's, it's cool stuff. Um, if you want to get started with it, I highly, highly recommend the Visual Studio Code um, extension for Azure Functions. Um, you do have to do a little bit of command line magic. get it all to work, but you can, if I'm on a Mac, so you can do it with homebrew. Um, and at this point I've got it mostly to the point that I want it to, but I realized that I could do what I want to do with like three, uh, functions. And the one is just the HTTP endpoint that records the request. And then the other ones are essentially the ones that build the reports. So, you know, um, every so often it'll just go in and it'll build out the report. Um, for you know the day and then the other one the other uh, function that i need is whenever there's a new line added to um cosmos db because i'm just using their built-in database because why the heck not um i have another azure function that i've built or will be building that will do all the deduplication so it'll look at it and say is this a request for the same url um from the same user agent within 24 hours from the same ip address and so you know, it'll look at everything that it knows about it and then it'll use that to determine whether or not it thinks it's a duplicate download because some some of them go in and they request um, different parts of the file and so you'll get five requests for the same thing and it's the same download and so that's what you're aiming to uh, to eliminate. But yeah, um, it's been pretty cool just playing with that and seeing what the cloud providers offer that way. Um, and then I, I keep seeing a lot of Um, the conversations about DevOps going more toward managing cloud resources as opposed to managing server resources. So anyway, um, that's my pick. Usher, do you have some things you want to shout out about with us?
3: Um, Yeah, I think um, one thing that I'm personally very passionate about and a lot of folks, I think, experience this pain being operators on call is they lose sleep. And you lose sleep in, in many different capacities at a company. So um, one book that I have um, really read and is near and dear to my heart, heart is this book called Why We Sleep. And it's the Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams. And it really is by this it's, it's by this professor at UC Berkeley who's done extensive research on sleep physics and sleep, how it affects physiology and biology and the evolution of sleep over time and Um, I would say, I would highly recommend this book for folks that struggle with sleep and stress, particularly on-call engineers that, um, and if you're looking for a case to to make to your bosses about, you know, why on-call really sucks and why, you know, how it's affecting people personally in their lives, like this book really provides a lot of insight into that. So um, I used to struggle a lot with sleep and this book just helped me understand why and it's uh, made some big, big changes to my sleep habits and sleep patterns to, to help me get that sleep. So, um, highly recommended for folks that, as I mentioned, uh, especially for on-call engineers and, um, definitely a way to make a case to why things should be better because it's, it's really, that lack of sleep is, is really hurting you whether you realize it or not.
2: Yeah. I, I like that pick the, I've done a lot over the years with trying to improve my sleep and using eye masks and, um, but, uh, I also have realized that if I, if I go multiple days with like, uh, like s- even slight sleep deprivation, like as little as like five or six hours of sleep, like I will literally be way more likely to be irritable and kind of cranky and stuff.
3: More likely to blame.
2: Yeah. Yeah, totally.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: Very cool. Well, I, uh, one last question and I usually ask this before the picks, but I didn't. Um, Usher, if people want to see what you're working on these days or just follow you on social media, where do they go?
3: Um, I'm available on uh, LinkedIn. Um, there's a lot of stuff that uh, we'll be writing and posting um, on LinkedIn. Um, it's Usher the A S H A R R I Z Q I, that's my last name. Um, Twitter, if you just search for Blameless HQ, um, you'll find a lot of stuff there. And of course, uh, on the Blameless blog page, you'll see some really cool and exciting um, thoughts and leadership exercises that we've brought together from commun- you know, these, these DevOps and SRE leaders uh, around the world. So, blameless.com slash blog.
0: Nice.
1: Fantastic.
0: All right. Well, um, this has been great. Really enjoyed this conversation. Let's go ahead and wrap this one up and uh, we'll have another episode for folks next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot to learn more.